Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Welcome to our second season of Tip of the Tongue. We are here with Dr. Howard Conyers, a scientist at Stennis Space Center in Hancock County, Mississippi. Not only is he a rocket scientist, but he is a barbecue master in the style of South Carolina whole hog barbecue. And you may also know him from having seen his popular web series, Nourish, where he was host and chief explorer of culture. It's really important to have the opportunity to listen to the story of new projects unfolding. And so that's one of the exciting reasons to listen to Howard today. Welcome, Howard. Thank you for having me today. I'm very excited to have you. And so if you wouldn't mind, I would really like to know, and I think everybody else would too, what drove you to share publicly your personal experiences with the techniques and social importance of South Carolina barbecue, even though you were a scientist? Partially through food, it was a way for me to get connect back to home, being 12 hours away from South Carolina where I was born and raised. Number two, I did not see the representation of people who cook barbecue like I did in the media and mainstream. And that was the primary driver for cooking whole hog barbecue. And so with that, when I didn't see those individuals who looked like me being being an African-American or black, I said, I ultimately want to make sure that I could make sure America knows who was doing those traditions. And those traditions actually coincided with uh, African-American enslaved ancestors and cooking in the American South in Earth Dove Pit, similar to how my father was cooking a whole hog barbecue. So when did you actually start sort of going public with this? I think I started cooking in New Orleans around 2013. I cooked for publicly. My first event was Halls for the Cause, a philanthropic uh, fundraiser that used barbecue to raise money for kids with pediatric brain cancer. And so how has that changed everything that you've done? I believe how that changed what I'm doing, it actually started with giving some visibility and people were curious about how a pit master is also a rocket scientist. And I guess it was a very interesting story, but to me, cooking barbecue was just um, a way of life to me. It was something that was very normal and not anything special per se for in my community. But other people found it really fascinating because I was using a very old technique. And when you think about like rocketry, you think about the most advanced side of um, technology. So it was definitely a relationship that most people wouldn't have had with it. And uh, growing up in that culture, I wanted to make sure that I give people a true authentic version of what what is what I call South Carolina barbecue at the time, but what I have later known to become the foundation of American barbecues because those pits that I cook in that start in the ground, you can find in their literature from Virginia all the way down to the Carolinas and you can follow the other slave holding states across the American South all the way up to East Texas. 
And so have you found similarities around the world in this kind of cooking? Now, that I have not found similarities with open pit cooking around the world. I have seen pit cooking, but generally when they do pit cooking, they actually cover up the animal in dirt and kind of like an oven, and I have seen that around the world. But I haven't seen pit cooking where the pit is open and people putting whole animals, butterflies, and applying a heat source mainly wood embers that has been burned down underneath the animals throughout the cooking process. I have not seen that cooking process, how it's found in the American South or how it was found in the American South. So what you've seen is more where the pit is closed and then the embers or, or fire is put from the top. Sometimes the embers are on top or they have a fire. Sometimes they'll close the animal up in the ground and they'll put like a fire on top of the ground and let the heat kind of like conduct through the soil. Or you will see sometimes people would put like hot stones and they will wrap those hot stones. They'll wrap those hot stones around the animal. It's kind of like a steam process and that steaming will actually cook the animals for okay. 4 to 12 hours. And so it's, it's more of a steaming process and not actually, I, I would say, a more of a not an actual barbecue and a technique. And so really, and you'll see that culture around the world. So really what you see around the world is the pit itself, but the method of using the pit could vary. It could vary. Okay. Well, I guess that pit became the very first oven in various different places. And yeah, it looks very much like an oven, and it functions almost like an oven. I would say it almost functions like a oven to the T. Almost like if you see other countries, you have like bread ovens or pizza ovens. You can almost think of it in that same type concept. And it's really interesting that even today, the oven isn't that different. If when you build some things and if it works, why change it? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's definitely true. And so what what do you think that you have learned about all of what you grew up doing and how has that changed as you've communicated about it to other people? Um, one of the biggest things I think I learned about pit cooking, I gained a deeper appreciation. It really helped me to understand American history because mm -hmm. those barbecue pits were found as the country was forming, even before the country forming to the United States of America. And so as, as you study those those pits and you look at the timeline of how America was forming, it, it coincided with America. It also showed you the agricultural heritage of America. And furthermore, it showed you how the knowledge of food and cooking across the South went, in, went with people's heads and hands and not in some textbooks or some recipes. Booklet. And you see so many similarities of cooking techniques in the old archival literature. It sometimes it's poorly documented because it was a second or third person type recording or transcription. But growing up, I knew when I saw, when I read some of those literature sources, when I read a lot of literature sources, whether it's WPA narratives or other books, I knew the gaps because I seen the research in real life and and it wasn't, when it was presenting it to me, it wasn't research. It was just something you did, and how, this is how we have done it. So to have an understanding that it was so in, deeply entrenched into American culture for 300 to 400 years, 350 to 400 years, it really says a lot. And it made me really uh, take it a little more serious and treat it as a special thing. 
especially if we deal with like racism today. So do you see this barbecue continuing today or is it something that is diminished in its practice? I believe the style of barbecue that I grew up cooking, while it will diminish, it will change form because as the country becomes more technologically advanced, the barbecue culture changes with it. But I hope that people, and through my work, that people have a, a clear definitive bookmark to the past because this style of cooking is timeless and it will last forever if power or things go out then you can still cook in this style of manner. Um, when you start having very technological type grills with electronic sensors, Bluetooth, um, P&IDs to actually control the dampers on the cooking process, if power goes away or cell phone technology goes away, then you can't monitor it. But the style of pit cooking that I do is fairly simple to execute once you understand it, but it's, uh, it's an art to it. And it's, you can do it Anywhere that you could have a fuel source in Iraq. So are you thinking that in order to make it continue, that you want to actually demonstrate it and teach people how to do it as a part of sort of the cultural continuity? Are you planning on writing a book? Are you doing a documentary? What are your plans? I think for us cooking, my cooking days of cooking barbecue like this is very, um, it's on the shorter half of the equation. I think I have done a lot of cooking and the people who have experienced it, um, who have witnessed something special, I probably will cook maybe once every publicly going forward on an as needed basis for special occasions that I want to drive a particular message or like one event I'm going to do is Gumbo Jubilee going forward in future years where I give out awards in the food ways mm-hmm. and where I really want to look at black and brown people and the contributions they made across America and different aspects from farm to table or to poor. And then I want to take the barbecue knowledge I know, and I believe I probably have roughly 350 years of barbecue knowledge in my head. And the reason I say 350 years, I'm going to stop it probably until like the 1970s, which is where my father last stopped cooking at the ground and, that knowledge is pivotal because there is really not a complete story of that particular uh, technique. And when, when I have cooked almost every animal in the American South that was found in historic literature, such as, um, of course, I have cooked whole hogs, but cooking a lamb, cooking a goat, cooking turkeys, and ultimately cooking a whole cow, very few people have that fundamental knowledge of how to pit cook a whole cow. So I want to document that via a book and something that would be kind of archival. It's probably going to be really complicated, but I am working on a shorter book project now. This is a coffee table book, an illustrated anthology of my journey in barbecue in the past six years, six or seven years, and then um, ultimately I hope to produce a document documentary that will support the full 350 to 400 years of American barbecue. And um, I think the reason I would stop it up to a certain point is because I don't feel like I should have to explain that. I think it's many other authors who can take the knowledge that's already been out on their shelves for the past 40 years. It's pretty well known. I think the knowledge that I possess is pretty unique and special. 
So that's why your sort of coffee table memoir that tells your journey. It kind of tells my journey and the people who I shared it with. Because uh, what I would say, like cooking in the ground, for example, my father last cooked in the ground in the 1970s. Growing up, I wasn't familiar with that. But my, what my father always said when we cooked barbecue was we, what I taught you how to cook barbecue, it started in those pits in the ground. So in 20, either 2016 or 2017, I had the opportunity to cook in Shreveport, Louisiana, and I cooked the hog in the ground, similarly to how my father did. And I did it again later for a TV show called Man Fire Foods. And so Americans could get a really good viewpoint of what that looked like. And in my own community, that technique of using that earth dug pit is probably, wasn't probably used in the past 40 years. Let's see, 2017 to like the 1970s. That's almost 50 years, 40 to 50 years. So I think that was pretty special for people to see that technique again. And also, I think what's even more important about that is growing up, we didn't take any pictures of cooking barbecue. So we didn't have any visual media, visual documentation. And so I wanted to make sure some of the cooking events I did is so I could, could give you a visual representation of what it looked like instead of having this all text. Because the picture is worth a thousand words. Yeah, I think the picture is good, although nothing is as good as actually doing it. That really gives you meaning in your body, you know, so that it, it's not just intellectual or abstract. But yeah, I want to ask you some other things. Particularly, tell me more about Gumbo Jubilee. So, Gumbo Jubilee was an event that I could see. I could see that because. One, New Orleans was celebrating its 300th year anniversary in 2018. And I wanted something to celebrate looking at the foodways of Louisiana as well as the rest of the South. And since I was doing it in New Orleans, New Orleans is pretty well known for gumbo. But when you think about gumbo, it's the dish that's pretty commonly found across the African diaspora. And I wanted it to be a celebration type activity. And also I wanted to recognize a DJ named DJ Jubilee who lives in, who who does a lot of community service in New Orleans, and I want to celebrate a few food and music culture, along with giving some awards um, to different people. So I gave one to New Orleans native Vance Verkosan, a Verkosan sausage. A couple other people were uh, Chef Therese Nelson out of New York and uh, Gullah Geechee Chef uh, B.J. Dennis, who have cooked a few on a few occasions in New Orleans. Um, at one of my first events, the Creole and Gullah Family Union at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. So the Gumbo Jubilee was kind of that event. And the other reason I did Gumbo Jubilee, because in mainstream, when I went to the national events, was that I didn't see African-Americans being focal point. It would be more of a secondary act. And it, and I'm as I look across American food, African-Americans was very pivotal to the food ways of the country. And to be a secondary act or second-class citizen, I felt like we needed a space where we could center ourselves. And that's the reason Gumbo Jubilee came about, is to broadcast that message of our contributions to food and music. And so are you considering that you will do this once a year or um, and, and give multiple awards, or do you do one a year? How, how, do, you, how do you manage it? So that's a good question. So Gumbo Jubilee going forward will be every two years. We're going to do another one this year, but it's going to be a virtual environment. But this year for virtually, I want to induct a few, 
new people to this uh, to this group. You can almost think about it. I use this analogy. Most people know about the James Beard Foundation Awards or the Southern Foodways Alliance, like fellows. And so these individuals that are putting these classes or cohorts, I want those individuals to be people I really work with, um, do a lot of advanced projects with in documenting our food and culture. And, and also just people who've been good supporters and making sure like everybody get a chance to be recognized. And so I'm going to do it every two years, but the next, Hopefully the next time I get the ready to do it again, I hope I'll be in a position where um, I'm able to do Gumbo Jubilee is almost like a festival. Mm-hmm. And I would I would love to do the festival in my home community in South Carolina, in Clarendon County. So like right now I'm doing something called a hundred acres project where I want, I'm trying to raise funds to actually purchase a, a private goal of mine was always to buy 50 to a hundred acres of farmland in my community. Mm-hmm. So I could, but I want to better host Gumbo Jubilee on that particular site, even though it will be used primarily for agriculture and economics and incubator in the rural south. And Clarion County, where I'm from, is a very small, it's a county, but it was very pivotal for education purposes in this country with desegregating schools. But I want to create Gumbo Jubilee and make it almost like a Coachella or Bonnaroo, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is a, basically a music arts festival. And I want to do the same thing with Gumball Jubilee West, be a music, art, and food festival, and barbecue is at the center of it. And that would be a, a big economic boost in the community also, wouldn't it, to bring all those It would be a very in? big economic boost, um, kind of like the agritourism. I think it would be something that could really um, change the perception of that community. Not that my community is bad, but just, it's an economic generator. I mm-hmm. see how festivals have impacts in New Orleans, but having like a flagship event in a small rural town in the South could be a big deal. And one of the events, when I was taping a show called Nourish for PBS, they, I did an episode with the Cochon de Lake Festival in Mansour, Louisiana. And in, in doing that show, I found out from one of the founders of that particular event, it almost rivaled it was online to be as almost as big as Jazz Fest. It almost got to the point that they almost had to stop. I think they, no, and almost, I think they stopped doing it for a few years because it got so large and the town couldn't even hardly handle the infrastructure. So oh, wow. I hope to be able to create something like that. And, and I might need to talk to the people from the Koshan Delay Festival to see some of the headaches or heartburns to make sure, like, if I build this thing out, that if it gets to a certain point, that I have to bring in maybe surrounding counties to kind of help in the logistics or the police um, force or have to cap it at a certain size. Yeah, it's always good to learn from people who've already experienced all the problems. (laughs) Yeah, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. That's one thing I have learned as an engineer. Yeah. So if we can... um shift gears, let me ask you about this this agricultural land that you're talking about in, in your county. Is this going to be demonstration agriculture, or are you really going to farm just to farm and sell? So if if I were able to secure the resources to buy 100 acres of land, I'm going to put a lot of it under cultivation. Mm-hmm. And when I put it under cultivation, I want to be able to take those products that grow up on the land and put them through some kind of production facility to be able to create a product that can be a consumable product that can be sold across the country. 
it may initially have to start out in the community or in the state itself, but eventually I would love for the product to be sold across the country. And so you go, you not only grow the product, but you value add, as some people say, a value added producers. So you're, you're talking about if you grow sweet potatoes, make sweet potato chips kind of thing? Yeah, something like, something like that. If you wonder, if I grew my family sweet potatoes, for example, could I make sweet potato chips or could I make a sweet potato nutritional bar? Mm-hmm. Or if I grew okra, could I make okra chips? Or if I grew corn, could I make, um, and when I, I don't know, I grits, for example. Uh-huh. Any of a variety of different products that I could make and add value and ship directly to consumer. And so if you had 100 acres, how far could that go, especially if you're growing more than one, more than one plant? Um, more I, than one crop. I, I think it could, I don't know how far it could go, but I think it, it's, it would be enough where it wouldn't be, it would be manageable, but it wouldn't be like, um, I guess, enslaved to the land where it'd still be fun to do. Um, because I know if you work in farming thousands upon thousands of acres, then you really kind of, um, you're putting a lot of time. So, but I hope the manufacturing facilities, for example, that I build upon this hundred acres could support other farmers in the community, not just farmers that uh, my own hundred acre farm hopefully has the resources and capabilities. If a neighboring farm is growing some corn and I want to process it, I should be in, I want to be in a position that I could process that corn within the community. And so is, is your company be going to be called, Gumbo Jubilee, or um, or do you have a name for the farm already in your head that might be the name of your pro? You know, the brand name of the products. I, I haven't came up with a name of the farm yet, but um, now I haven't I haven't come up with a name of the farm. Okay. Well, and, and not the name of the com- the brand name either, or would it be the farm name? Is that your? It, it would probably be the farm name and just Gumbo. It would. The farm name, whatever it is, and Gumbo Jubilee would be like that branding piece to kind of tie everything together. Like, say, Gumbo Jubilee is is being hosted at, let's just say, uh, I don't want to say Kanye's farm, but just say Gumbo Jubilee is for it's being at Gumbo Jubilee is being hosted at 1947 Farms. Uh huh. Okay. And the reason I picked, say, 1947 Farms, education is very important in my community. There were two court cases in my community that ultimately led to Brown Brown v. versus Board of Education. Mm-hmm. One was called Pearson versus Clarendon County, and the other one was called Briggs versus Elliott. Briggs versus Elliott came later after Pearson, but that court case was later folded into Brown v. versus Board of Education. So, uh, what were the circumstances so, in that in that case? Uh, the circumstances in that case, it started off because black farmers in my community wanted a school bus for their children to go to school. And the people in the county didn't want to, even though these black farmers were taxpayers, they did not want to give these black farmers a school bus. Tragic. And so they ended up filing a suit to get that. Well, I think people in New Orleans, too, are very aware of Brown versus Board of Education. So. Yeah, actually, and so I'm glad you brought that up, Liz. Um, so of course, Plessy versus Ferguson was is what what Brown versus the Board of Education overturned. Right. 
And then when you think about New Orleans in particular with Ruby Bridges, the the decision, the implications of that was uh, Ruby Bridges, I can't, can't remember what school she integrated in New Orleans, but the federal marshals had to go. And that was in, I think it was in the late 60s, I believe, when they had to uh, start integrating the schools. It was, it was earlier the, than that, not the late 60s, because I remember when it happened and I was, wasn't was like a, a, a older teenager. I was still kind of a young teenager. Okay. But I, but what I, what I know is this little six-year-old girl, I believe she was six years old, Ruby Bridges, had to be escorted into the school facility by federal marshals. Mm-hmm. And that all that came about because of Brown versus Board of Education decision. Yeah. I, I remember watching it on television in the news, so I definitely remember it. Um, yeah, it was, you know, judges in, in New Orleans. So, I mean, some of the judges, too, became socially ostracized and all sorts of things. So it was a really important decision on many, many levels. So I, I did not know about the connection to South Carolina, though. I think that's, that's very interesting. It's kind of full circle. <laughs> yes, it is. It definitely is, yeah. And I, and I mean, if anybody want to look it up and they got any questions about the South Carolina rules, um, I'll be glad to send an email to my website, and I'll be glad to entertain uh, questions on it since I'm so since I grew up in that community and now I live in New Orleans, Louisiana. So I, I may have a different perspective than um, while I didn't go through the segregated schools, I was the product order of those integrated schools where having white classmates, mm-hmm. unlike my parents who went to school in the segregated schools. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you one more question about your um, awards. Are you thinking ever of expanding beyond food and music to literature or, or other things, scientific okay. discovery, other other things? So it, it will probably primarily be in the hospitality industry so or food or agriculture-based related. So say, for instance, there's a couple of industries. I want to make sure farmers get recognized. Chefs, of course. It could be somebody from the alcohol industry, the spirits industry, because they're very um, important to the food space. Um, writers or media people. So they could, I mean, they might be untraditional people. And then I don't want to leave out somebody who's maybe doing like very impactful work in environmental justice, mm-hmm. because those are very, um, they go hand in hand with the whole food system piece. So I think it's, it may not be the, and, and that's really not all, they won't necessarily be a class, won't be like a name award, like say like Best Chef Award. Uh-huh. This will kind of be like an overall class of people. Mm-hmm. And these class of people, their work will intersect with like agriculture or environmental issues and then ultimately food in some integrated fashion. And so they could be like an executive, executive uh, a nonprofit ED or somebody who worked in the food systems world. Um, and one, one, one award that I want to do is, um, while I say I'm centering it on black and brown people, going forward, like there's, I will always try to find somebody who I'm going to say identify with, I guess, European descent or Caucasian, mm-hmm. because throughout this, struggle for equality, there always been somebody who has been of that um, of that background who has been helpful for the cause for equality and freedom. 
And so I, I think it's important to honor and recognize them and don't be totally exclusionary. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Howard, I want to ask you one more question before we wrap up. And that is, I want to know if there's anything you want to say that I haven't asked you. <laughs> I mean, I think I've talked about the things that I'm really passionate about right now. Uh, documenting my knowledge of barbecue. Uh, I, I, I didn't say, probably didn't say what um, book I'm working on. It's an illustrated anthology. And I'm going to call it Black Hand in the Pit. And that's going to be the coffee table style book and the 100 Acre Project to kind of lay the foundation for Gumbo Jubilee in future years, as well as developing an economic incubator in my home county of South Carolina. That's something that may outlast me, hopefully outlive me, and better give to the community for generations to come and help change, um, I guess, the systems. Because education is so important and in building any kind of economies. When people, employers try to come to a place they always want to know how the education system is doing. And if you improve the education and you improve the economics, then the healthcare system improves. Uh, so just want to do something to create something new, um, excite, and, and give back to my community to help make me who I am. A lot of times people in the rural South leave those areas and don't necessarily have the opportunity to go back. Not to say I'm going to leave New Orleans totally, because I want to do some stuff in New Orleans, Louisiana as well. But I want to try to build something there that kind of, I would say, is my, I guess, headquarters, and then come back and branch back out to Louisiana. Well, I wish you all of the best, because I know how hard it is to start something from scratch. So, um, I, 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 think you, I think you gave us a good example. You shared with me on many occasions with how you start the museum. Sometimes you have to start very small. And don't be afraid to start small and just things just kind of, I guess things just kind of magically show up. You take a step. So I really appreciate you sharing how you have helped start several museums. But if you want to share more on that, but that's one thing I got from you. You say sometimes people need to see more than just something on a piece of paper. They need to see, even if the room is the museum or this incubator is nothing but 20 by 10, if they see that one building, then they could like, okay, we see something. And I think you said, you could tell me, correct me if wrong, I forgot how you started one of the museums, and, yeah. but it was a, a small space. That's right. And I, I definitely think that at least that way, you're not just an idea, you're something real to people. I, th- I think it's a, it, and it also means that you're now working on something and it's not just an idea for you either anymore. So I, I totally understand, and I am really excited for you because it sounds like you have some really exciting plans. So thanks for joining me today, listening to Tip of the Tongue. We are p- part of the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Come visit us at the studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. You can find us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.